Thank you again, Heavenly Father, for this opportunity and for the gift of your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit might take your words and that he might search our lives and that he might not just speak to us, but challenge us and shape us to become more and more like Jesus. Help us to cooperate with his work in us. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Visiting my granddaughter last weekend, I got to stay with my son at the conference I attended in Sydney. And our youngest granddaughter is Violet. I said, how old are you now, sweetheart? She said, five and a half. And she holds up five and then she tries to hold up a half. Reminded me of a little boy who came to another pastor at one time, Ray Stedman, and he said, how old are you, son? He said, I'm 12. I'm nearly 13 and I'm soon to be 14. <laughs> eager to grow, eager to grow up. We are at that age, aren't we? And then we all want it to slow down. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, has outlined for them some very clear instructions. In verse 1, he says to them, um, he reminds them, as we instructed you, in verse 2, um, you know what instructions we gave you. Verse 6, we told you. And we warned you. And in verse 11, he says, just as we told you. The Apostle Paul was only in Thessalonica for a very short time. And it would appear that he delivered over that matter of very short few months, a series of almost scripted instructions. It's almost like in the early church, they came up with a list very quickly of what do you do? How do you instruct new disciples of Jesus? You need to teach them about this, you need to teach them about that, you need to teach them these truths. It's put off these things, put on these things. Um... Here are the truths to know about Jesus and what he said. Here is spiritual warfare truth. Jesus is coming back. There is a judgment day. All of these sorts of things seem to be given to new disciples, new believers, reasonably early on. And so here is this Thessalonian church, which is reasonably successful, full of love, full of faith, full of hope, with a reputation that has just exploded and spread throughout all of Greece, Macedonia and Achaia. And here is Paul saying to them in verse 1, to do so more and more. He repeats that phrase down in verse 10. To do so more and more. First thing I want us to note out of this passage is that we need to press on. We need to continue to grow. How old are you? Five and a half. Twelve, nearly thirteen, going on fourteen. But it seems to me that as we get older in the Christian life, sometimes we back off. It becomes easier for us to simply drift. We get caught up in the humdrum of life. Things become more routine. We lose that eagerness to grow. I wonder if that's happened to you. It certainly happened to the church in Ephesus. End of the first century, Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus and says, have one thing, you do all these things, you do the doctrine stuff and you do the evaluation of false teachers stuff and your labour of love and your works. You're flat out, you're doing great things, but I have this against you. Do you remember? <clears throat> Left your first love. Left their first love, that love they had at the first for him and for one another. They'd grown coolish, cold, drifting, easy to do. Same things happen in marriages. Look across a crowded room, your eyes meet, 
there's sparks, there's chemistry, there's an attraction, there's romance, you get married. It's like that for the first 27 years, 27 months. Kids come, passion dies, routines emerge, busyness descends, kids are demanding. Suddenly you drift apart. True or not true? Hello. Too true for too many. Not true for everybody. Hope it's not true for you. The reality is for most of us probably, if your experience is like mine, there are times of when it's really outstanding high and then there are just troughs. There are just when it's a bit flat. It's a bit ho-hum, isn't it? Well, I'm ho-hum, even if you're not. That's life. But if you want the romance to stay in your marriage, then you've got to work at it. You've got to work hard at it. I tell Rhonda that all the time. You've got to work hard at it. <laughs> so too spiritually. You want to stay passionate for the Lord Jesus. You've got to work hard at it. This passage says to us, the New Testament says consistently, move on, continue to grow. It's not enough to lead someone to become a follower of the Lord Jesus, a disciple, and to baptise them. And today is Baptism Sunday. Next service, three young people will be getting baptised. And tonight, I think there's another three getting baptised. This is wonderful. It's not enough. It doesn't stop there. Even Jesus said, that's not enough. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptise them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and... Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teach them, teach them, teach them. Instruct them, educate them. Move on. Don't rest on your laurels. Don't rest on, well, I've got this nailed. Don't coast. Move on. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul is saying very clearly, continue to move on to the Thessalonian church, a young church. And he does so in three particular areas, which I'll come to in a moment. In the NIV, which is, translates it fully accurately, gives us the meaning in English, Paul says, as for these matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. In the ESV and in some other older versions, RSV and so on, it'll use the, the metaphor of we instructed you how to walk in the Lord Jesus, which is a very common New Testament metaphor. It's a picture. In fact, it's Paul's favourite picture. I think he uses it, one commentator said, 36 times to walk. Walk in the spirit. Don't walk after the flesh. To walk. Which is a wonderful metaphor, which is I'm sure why the Apostle Paul was attracted to it, because following Jesus is not a leap. It's not this sudden flash and suddenly you're transferred from being ungodly to being fully mature and godly. It's a walk. It takes time. There are some efforts required. Walk is that step-by-step -step process, isn't it? Amos chapter 3 verse 3 says, Can two walk together unless they be agreed? God's talking about him and people. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? As you walk with God, you'll get to know him a little bit more. Colossians 2.6 says, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Move on. Keep moving forward. Walk in him. Walk with him. Or Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Holy Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Are you walking with God? I hope so. And if you're not, 
because you haven't started the journey yet, then we'd love to talk to you about that and show you how to do that. It all begins with, to walk with God, you've got to know God, to know God, you've got to know Jesus. It all starts with him, and it goes on with him. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, um, we instructed you how to live, as in fact you are living, and now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus, do so more and more. I've said that, verse 2. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should be holy. Many people wrestle with God's will. What is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? Well, the question to always consider if you're wrestling with God's will, usually we ask that in terms of career or what's the next thing or marriage or relationships or what does God want me to do in terms of an investment or buying a house? Which house does God want me to buy? Or whatever. Well, the question to consider firstly, God's will can be hard to find. Agreed. But the question to always ask first is, am I doing what I know to be God's will now? I may not know the answer to that, what is God's will for me doing that, but make sure I am doing what, God, what I know to be God's will now. In this passage, we are told very clearly, it is God's will for us to be sanctified, holy, set apart and different. Well, there's lots of these. Let me spit fire, rapid fire through these uh, very quickly. It's God's will for you to be saved. That's number one, 1 Timothy 2.4. It's God's will for you to be spirit-filled, filled with his Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. Are you filled with the Spirit? It's God's will for you to be submissive to those in authority over you, 1 Peter 2. It's God's will for you to be prepared to suffer for the Lord Jesus, 1 Peter 4.19. It's God's will for you to be serving using your spiritual gifts. It's God's will for you to be praying, giving thanks to him on all occasions, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It's God's will for you to be a student of scripture. It's God's will for you to be a sacrificial giver. It's God's will about your speech. It's God's will for you to be surrendering. All of these are clearly referenced for us in the scriptures. God's will is do this, do this, do this. Am I doing that? Because if I'm doing that, then who's in control of my life? He is. Now this gets dangerous and tricky. The Bible says that the heart of man is desperately wicked and it can't be trusted. But if you are doing the will of God as revealed by those 10 or so directives from Scripture, then who is controlling your heart? He is. And that's when Psalm 37 verse 4 can be trusted. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You can trust the desires of your heart when you are doing the will of God. You'll suddenly get an inkling, an urge, a prompting when you're walking in obedience. Dan and Liz can get a prompting, a direction of saying it's time to move from Sunnybank and it's time to go to City on the Hill, Church on the Hill. That's how the Spirit moves and works in us. Our job is to make sure that we are doing the will of God and then let him direct us accordingly. Let's move on. This passage says it is God's will for us to be sanctified. Sanctification is a very broad term in the New Testament. It has three dimensions to it, and this is focusing upon the middle one. There is, to be sanctified means to be set apart, to be made different from the rest. We're taken out of the world and we're made part of God's people, God's holy people, set apart. We're different to what we were and to others. We are dedicated to him. That's a positional sanctification. That's in Christ. 
When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, you are positionally sanctified. You are made holy. And if you like to think in those terms, then your whole spirit has been perfected, forgiven totally. You still have a soul, you still have flesh, which isn't, but your spirit is perfected. Then secondly, there is progressive sanctification, positional sanctification in Christ. Progressive sanctification is what this passage is talking about, which is the work of Christ in us. That's what Christ did for us, died and rose again, saved us. This is now sanctification, the outworking of his will in our life. It's a walking with him, it's a day by day, it's a process and there is to be progress and we are to move on. We are to do it more and more. That's progressive sanctification. And then of course there is the third one which is called perfected sanctification, which is heaven when we're glorified. When Jesus Christ returns and we see him as he is, then we will be transformed to be like him as he is, 1 John 3. That's perfected. Positional, progressive, perfected. This one. Now some Christians, and I hope you're not part of this, think totally incorrectly about this. I am sanctified in Christ. I'm supposed to grow in the Christian life, but I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to please myself and do whatever I like. And then when Jesus comes back, he's going to make me perfect. It'll be okay. I don't care where I get into heaven as long as I am in heaven and I'll be in heaven because of Jesus. If that's your thinking, it's faulty thinking. The New Testament says very clearly, those who are in Christ progress in sanctification. If there is no progress in sanctification, if there's no growth, if there's no change, then you have to question the legitimacy and the reality of the regeneration, the salvation. It's quite possible for a person to pray the prayer and it's all in their head, but it's not heartfelt transformational. Christians in word, name only. These will be the people who will say on the last day, Lord, Lord, in your name, didn't I do this? Didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I perform miracles? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Jesus will say, <clears throat> I never knew you. It wasn't real. When you said, forgive me, you didn't mean it. Just saying the words. The Apostle Paul says, God's will for us is in verse 3 is that we be sanctified. In Christ, so he's talking now about that we be progressively made holier in our life, to go on more and more. He picks one dimension of that, which is where a fair bit of my time this morning will go, and it's the negative aspect. There's positive and negative aspects. There are things to stop, there are things to start in order to, to do, in order to be sanctified. The negative one he picks on is significant in that culture and in ours. Verse 3, is God's will for you to be sanctified, Negatively, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. The Bible's very clear about sex. It's God's gift to us. Sex is fun, but only when it's done the way that God intends and the way God wills. that we are to abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word that Paul uses here means all inappropriate sex outside of marriage. 
Well, what was going on in Thessalonica at this time? Well, there was no internet, no smartphones, and no Playboy magazines or anything, but they lived in a sexually promiscuous culture. When you went to the temple and worshipped the gods, you were engaged in sexual activity. Extramarital sex was tolerated, encouraged, and expected. You hear that? Extramarital sex. Tolerated, encouraged, expected. There was no policing of your behaviour. Everything was permissible and acceptable. If you went to an extreme, there might be satire made comments about it, but there was no policing, there was no consequences to it. Just like if a person ate too much, there would be satire about gluttony. If they drank too much and got drunk too much, there would be satire about that. So if a person was overly sexually promiscuous, it would have to be to an extreme. But this is what normal was in their world, that you could be married to have a wife. The role of the wife was to manage the household, to have children, and that they would be your legitimate heirs. Tolerated, expected, and acceptable for you also to have a mistress. That was for your pleasure and for your intellectual companionship. Many people had slaves, and so any slave, you could have sex with them because you owned them, male and female. You could visit the prostitutes for personal, casual gratification, and what haven't I said? A mistress, a slave, you could visit a prostitute and you could have a wife. That was normal. Normal. Male, female, as well as young children. One of the Greek words in the New Testament which is used is referring to people who are under the age of 17 in their world. Now think about our world. We're not that far apart, are we? We have laws, but gee, the attitudes are the same. This is a countercultural instruction the Apostle Paul is giving them. It is God's will for you to be holy, set apart, different, dedicated, privately and publicly, and in this passage, sexually. It's not moderation of your sexual conduct. Unless you're married, it's total abstinence. Say that to your non-Christian friends. You Christians are weird. You don't believe in having sex outside of marriage. That's no, worse than that. We not only don't believe in having sex outside of marriage, we think you should only have sex with that one person, your spouse. What? They're shocked by it. They think it's ridiculous. Countercultural. And so, of course, there is a huge amount of pressure, isn't there, in our world? And our young people, and it's not just our young people, our middle-aged people and our older people, are all exposed to the sexual temptations. The statistics are frightening. It is an issue. Between being online or in magazine or in print or video or movies or streaming live, this is an old statistic now, but there is something like, guess how many pornographic movies are made every year? Guess. 11,000. That's an old figure. 11,000. Then we do stats. People aged 18 to 24, at least 70% of them visit a porn site every month. 70%. These are old figures. Older people, 24 to 39, doesn't drop by much, 66%. That's before smartphones. It's worse. What was going on in Thessalonica is going on in our world. 
Sexual promiscuity is everywhere. And so the word is very relevant for us. God wants us to avoid all sexual immorality. And now I'm not sure how you'll be responding to this, but I know how our non-Christian friends will respond to it, or those on the journey. They will say, this is a very costly uh, requirement. If I get serious about following God, then God's going to take all the fun out of my life. That's their fear. I wonder if it's your fear. That's a lie of the devil. That's a lie. You're being deluded. You've got false information, wrong thinking. The reality is, when you get serious about God, he'll put zip and zest into your life. Your life will be happier, you'll be healthier, and you'll be more challenged and stimulated. That's certainly my experience. It was Jesus' experience. Look at his life. He said, I have come that you might have life and have it, what? Abundantly. I have so much fun in life, you won't be able to fit it in as you follow God. Psalm 16 says, At God's right hand there are pleasures forevermore. But we've been lied to by the evil one and by the world around us. And we think this is pleasure. And if we give in to these sinful pleasures, then we are missing out on those divine pleasures. The only way to embrace and to experience these divine pleasures is by being obedient to the will of God. Saying no to sexual immorality. As a follower of the Lord Jesus, your body has been bought by Christ, you belong to Christ, and God's will is expressed in our bodies. It's God's will for you to be sanctified. You can't avoid the amount of uh, exposure in our culture. From a male perspective, we cannot avoid the sensually dressed woman who is provocatively dressed or who is parading herself in our culture whether it's live or whether it's on tv or whether it's in magazines or whether it's on whatever it's just in your face all the time but you can avoid last lusting after her you can control your quality of mind and choices and you can redirect your thoughts put on the lord jesus christ think his thoughts after him commit yourself to him ask for his protection Paul goes on in this passage very quickly and he talks about how sin hurts God's name, how sin hurts us and how sin hurts others. And note in verse 6 particularly, God takes this sin, sexual sin, very seriously. He takes all sin seriously. But Paul in this passage is saying in verse 6, and in this matter make sure you wrong no one, no one else. Or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit this sin, such sins. He is the avenger. I thought in Jesus all my sins were forgiven. Yeah, they are. But this passage is saying if we are disobedient to this progressive walk of sanctification in our life, of obeying him, that there will be consequences to our sin. Forgiven, but the consequences are not necessarily removed. God and his grace can but he can also, as a righteous judge, leave it there. Two alcoholics get saved. Instantly, immediately transformed by the grace of God. One guy has no desire for alcohol again in his life. Completely delivered from it, miraculously transformed. It's wonderful. Another guy, equally saved, 
wrestles day by day with the temptation. He's got to do it one day at a time. He's got to attend the AA meetings. He's got to notch the numbers up. It's a battle. God can do that or he can do that in your life. Either way, God's will is clear for both. The path might be different for us. But the goal is the same, full obedience to the Lord Jesus. I like what John Phillips said about marriage. He said, when a person gets married, that ring on your hand is like a big sign that says no trespassing. And then he said in subtext underneath there's another sign, trespassers will be prosecuted. That's what this verse is saying. Transgress in this area of our lives, and many of us do, many of us are, then there will be consequences. Let me continue to emphasize this a little bit. God's truth is to touch every key on the keyboard of our life. The reality is sexual sin, like any sin, finds its origin in our unwillingness to do what God says. In fact, if you think about it bluntly, when I sin, when we sin, we are saying, God, I don't care what you say or what this will do to you and if it's a sexual sin and I don't care that this other person is going to hurt you and be hurt by me as well it's a totally self that's what sin does to us we think it's about pleasure fulfilling or seeking when really it's this spiritual battle going on and Satan wants to keep us where we are comfortable in church complacent in our walk and callous, particularly when it comes to sexual purity. Church our size, I am quite sure there will be people in our congregations who will be struggling with this area of their life. You are not alone. And you are not condemned. This is a real church for real people who live in the real world. If you're struggling in this particular area of your life with sexual immorality, whether it's pornography, so it's a fantasizing thing, or whether it's the actual physical acts of you being unfaithful or crossing that boundary line of having sex outside of marriage. The number one, a couple of things to do. One, confess. Confess to God. You and he privately. Psalm, read Psalm 51, use that if you like. Proverbs 28:13 says that those who cover their sin will not prosper. But those who confess and forsake will find mercy. That's the key. Confess. Number two. This is more difficult because that's between you and God. That's first step. Second step is difficult but very helpful and very important. Confess to somebody else. Find a trusted other and confess to them. James 5.16 Where they will listen and they will pray for you and they will hold you accountable. Those who confess and forsake, I want help in this area of my life, I need you to hold me accountable so that I am not doing it. And if I'm getting tempted and I'm about to give in, then I can ring you and contact you and you can be talking to me about it and helping me in it. Confess to somebody else. Number three, and if you find in doing that that you're cheating, you're not being honest with this person that you're being accountable to, then that's a clue for you to seek professional help. Go to a counsellor. Go to a psychologist. Someone who is trained to help and assist 
in this area. Join a support group, Liberty International. For some of us, freedom from sexual sin is, freedom from sexual sin is going to take some time. And it may very well involve on this progressive sanctification, a step forward and a fall, a stepping back. A step forward and a stepping back. And a two steps forward and one step back. Proverbs 24 verse 16 says, The righteous might fall seven times, but he gets up eight. That's the difference. Not did I fail. We all fail. Not did I fail. But which way are my feet pointed? They still pointed towards me. Oh, I want to please God. I want to do God's will. I need help in doing it. We all sin. We all fall. Don't condemn anybody else if they fall in this particular area. You might fall in another area. We all have besetting sins that are very hard to get rid of and we cannot do it by ourselves. We need Jesus to deliver us. We need Jesus' people to assisting us and holding us accountable. That's the first paragraph, and I've got two minutes to do the next paragraph. <clears throat> it's important for us to hear all of that, though. Work at loving God better and better in your life. That's what Paul is saying. Press on. Keep on growing and improving in your walk with him. Know what God says and do what God says. Certainly easier to say. Be holy. God's desire for you is that we would make him our greatest desire. Holiness. Paul then moves on very quickly and he talks about the overflow of holiness in our relationships in the church. Verses 9 and following. Um, <clears throat> now about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. That's what happens. God's spirit inside of us, teaching us. And in fact, you do love all of God's family, not just locally, but, excuse me, right throughout the whole state of Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, there it is again, do so more and more. Work at loving one another. Work at it. We have to work at it. What is this love that we are to work at? It's a self-sacrificial, caring commitment that is aimed at the highest good in another. That's a mouthful unselfish concern for others it is not selfish it is others orientated it's observable in action and it's a concern it's not a feeling but it's not divorced from feelings it's a choice it's an action it's choosing to be loving towards the other person and to help them to achieve their highest good what's their highest good to know love and serve God it's helping others in their relationship and walk with God to move forward in knowing him and we can't rest on our laurels. Love is an action that requires improvement. We need to get better at it and better at it and better at it and better and improving and improving. And the standard is Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the standard. How did Jesus love? Study the life of Jesus and keep moving forward. Holiness means that we will learn to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love them. In the old days, they used to say in the early church, see how those Christians love one another. See how those Christians love one another. Until the community says that, 
Until they look at our relationships, until they look at our affections and our warmth for one another, then we've got improvements to make, to go on, to excel, to abound, not criticising one another. It begins at the local church, but then it moves out from there. This is the centre and this is the focus, but there is no circumference. It moves out. Other churches, other Christians, other people. We can always learn to love our spouses more. Agreed? I can. We can always learn to love our children and our grandchildren more, our family members more, our fellow Christians more, and our neighbours more. It's not automatic. It's something we have to put some time and effort and thinking into. Here's an idea. Read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8a. Write it out. Read it every day. And ask God to teach you, what does it mean to love? And list the characteristics. There are positive and negative. There's about seven negative and about eight positive or something like that. Love does not, love is. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. You keep a record of wrongs? It's not loving. Love bears all, hopes the best. Read 1 Corinthians 13. And then thirdly, Paul goes on and says, not only do we need to work on our loving God better and work on loving one another better, we need to make sure that we work at work better, particularly for the outside world, that we work at being more respectful to those on the outside. And he says in rapid fire here that we are to lead a quiet life, to be content, to be calm, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to be salt and light in the community, not a flopping megaphone, salt and light to be permeating unobtrusive to lead a quiet life the phrase is actually almost irish in logic be restless until you are still (laughs) work hard at being quiet attend to your own affairs or in the niv mind your own business Stop meddling in other people's business. Don't be a gossip or a busybody. And if someone opens and shares with you, then make sure you keep your mouth shut. Hold confidences. And then Paul says, work hard with your hands. Work hard. In Greek culture, they look down on manual labour. It's fit for slaves only. But here is the Apostle Paul saying, no, work is not a curse. Work is a calling from God. Work hard. Work as to the Lord. And then two things will happen. Number one, you won't be in need. You'll be self-supporting. You won't have to be relying on others. Pay your bills. Be a good manager of your finances. But then also, and the outsiders will notice and respect you. Here is an evangelistic strategy. Work hard. Maintain good, solid work ethic. Unbelievers are watching us at work. Be respectful of Everybody, 1 Peter 2.17. Be respectful of everybody. Be respectful of everybody. The people who vote, yes, be respectful. People who vote, no, be respectful. Unbelievers are watching. Work hard with integrity and honesty. Have a strong work ethic. Don't you, listen to this and evaluate this. Don't use work time to study the Bible. Don't use work time to evangelise. You think it through. You're going to have to be smart. 
when an opportunity comes up at work, by all means plant the seed, say, can we meet up at lunch, can we meet up after work, can I meet up after whatever time? It's not appropriate for me to be using this time. Or if you do use this time, make sure you make up for it in some other way. Be people of integrity and of honesty. The world is watching. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Be quiet. Mind your own business. Work hard. And the outside world will say, what is going on with those people? And you'll be independent, self-supporting. Not reliant upon them or upon others, but enabled to be an outrageous disciple of the Lord Jesus. Let me summarise in a moment, but let me say this first of all. And if you get nothing else this morning, gee, get this bit, will you? The pastor of a church met a woman in the church, gave a greeting, said, what do you do? You might want to do this yourself this morning. She smiled and she said, Pastor, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, but I'm cleverly disguised as a machine operator. What do you do for a living? I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, undercover as a, insert your career. Are you a retired person? I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ and I am undercover as a retiree. <laughs> I'm a disciple of Jesus be holy where you are. Press on to love God. Love one another more and more. And always keep the outsider on your radar screen. Let's pray together. Father, you sent Jesus into the world to save and to redeem sinners. People with broken lives. People with defiant wills. People who have been deluded and deceived by the world and by Satan. And Lord, we're on the receiving end of that. We've got received your forgiveness and your grace. And this morning you've reminded us that we are not simply to rest on our laurels, but to move on, to progress, to improve, to get better and better. Help us, Lord, to love you more and more, to be holy, especially in this area of sexual uh, purity. Can you also help us to love one another more and more, Remove all of the gaps. Help us to address the hurts. Where there is misunderstandings or division or whatever, heal it. We want to cooperate with you in that. And Lord, we know you're concerned for this lost world and you want to demonstrate your love to them through us. We pray that you'll help us to show that at our work. Work hard mind our own business and to be quiet, respectful. Lord, we pray this in your name. We believe this is your will. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.